1: Waiting several hours in line for a hug is well worth it for thousands of people, the devotees of the Guru Amma. In Reflections of Amma, Devotees in a Global Embrace, Amanda Lucia provides a rich ethnographic account of Amma's American followers and convincingly argues that there is much to learn here about gender, interpretation, and (laughs) contemporary. Waiting several hours in line for a hug is well worth it for thousands of people, The Devotees of the Guru, Amma. In Reflections of Amma, Devotees in a Global Embrace, Amanda Lucia provides a rich ethnographic account of Amma's American followers and convincingly argues that there is much to learn here about gender, interpretation, and contemporary American religiosity. Amma's devotees in the United States are usually inheritors or adopters of Hindu traditions, which shapes their interpretive vantage point and understandings of Amma as Hindu goddess or feminist. American multiculturalism and romantic Orientalist attitudes frequently reify cultural differences, further structuring the interrelations between South Asians and non-Indian devotees in the American context. In our conversation, we discuss female religious leaders, darshan, gurus in the American context, purity and ritual, women's empowerment, village and urban transformations, Devi Baba, and gendered interpretations of Hinduism. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion. Without any further delay, here's our conversation. Joining me today is Amanda Lucia, author of The Wonderful Reflections of Ama, Devotees in a Global Embrace, which was published with University of California Press in 2014. Welcome, Amanda. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for making the time to talk about your, your great book. Before we get into that, though, um, as is our tradition here, we like to get to know you a little bit better. So could you give us a little bit of information about how you got interested in the study of religion, perhaps uh, key moments or mentors that were influential in the topics you address, the questions you're asking, the approaches you're taking?
0: Absolutely. Um, You know, I wasn't raised in a religious tradition necessarily. And so I found myself quite early on fascinated by religion as it informed people's lives and created, enabled them to have worldviews that were quite different from mine. Um, in some cases, radically different um, worldviews. And I, I began being quite interested in unpacking the logics that inform decision making processes as based on, kind of these worldviews. Um and as a young undergrad, I was um initially a music major and I took one of uh David Haberman at Indiana University's um big lecture classes. It was like a huge undergrad lecture um on religions of the East. And I remember quite early in that class, he said, Well, there's this program and there's an opportunity to go to India for a year. And that excited me so much and I followed through and changed my major and went to India. And as a junior, I was only, I was young for my age, for my grade level. So I was only 18 when I went. Um, and my project, I decided, you know, with this interest in kind of radical alterity and, and different world views, was to go talk to Babas, talk to Sadhus, these world renunciates um, along the Ganges, kind of from Varanasi, where I was living up through the Himalaya um, regions. And I found it, completely fascinating, you know, uh, their life stories and why they were living in the radically different ways than I was living and and what kind of fueled them to do that, um, kind of work. And somehow that idea and interest continues to capture my attention. So, uh, then through that work initially, um, I started off, you know, quite naively looking for female gurus and female ascetics and I was told by many people in the kind of conservative veins of Arunasi that they just didn't exist or if they existed that they were there um uh, kind of as a social system, uh, uh, ways of, of feeding themselves and finding economic support in the wake of um, increasing old age or their husband's passing and things like that. And I just found that I couldn't believe that story, that they didn't exist, um, you know, because I knew from you know, there, there had been historically female aesthetics and gurus. Um, and then I tell the story at the beginning of this Amma book, Reflections of Amma, about going down south and then finding, seeing Amma's ashram. You know, my research project was already well underway, um, mostly about male gurus, and then becoming intrigued by this quite famous Hindu female guru um, who had quite a bit of power and global influence and somehow uh, was being masked by the more conservative uh, interpretations of the tradition. So um, that's my story in some sense. Now I'm working on a book on, on yoga. In the U.S., which is still kind of following this vein of aesthetic lifestyles and and radical alterity. So, hmm.
1: now from from what you just told us here, and from a lot of the kind of biographical information that's presented in the book, you've been working on this for for years and years. Can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book length uh, item? Can you, or or perhaps if you if you you know, lots of listeners probably are also authors. Uh, how did you transition some of this work you did in graduate school and even earlier into uh, the the current book?
0: Right. So, you know, that undergraduate project never had anything to do with Alma. Um, and even in graduate school at the University of Chicago for my first many years there, I wasn't even thinking about Alma. As I mentioned in the book, it wasn't, I think, until... Um, 2004 that I happenstanced upon her darshan uh, programs in Naperville, Illinois, um, and I was already several years into my graduate work by that point. And in fact, so many people had told me, um, you know, that Ama's the real thing. That I really didn't want to study Ama because maybe there was part of me that worried of you know looking for authenticity. You know, this is a real issue in among gurus and sannyasis and sadhus and all of these kind of religious adepts, like who is real and who is fake. Um, and so I didn't even want to engage in those discourses at all. Um, but then eventually, once I went to her programs in the suburbs of Chicago and found such an eclectic and interesting combination of people, I was really became not so much interested in the guru, which I had been quite a bit earlier, but now interested in the people Uh, the devotees, who are, who are the followers? Um, and that's really what sparked my interest more than, more than anything. Um, so then I began writing a dissertation on Amma's followers. Um, and of course, like any dissertation, it had, uh, you know, aspects that are really unsellable in the the marketplace. Uh, Also, things had had been done. So once I published the dissertation in 2010, I felt a real obligation to present my work to the devotees and to the kind of broader community. So I made it freely available online. Um, And then, you know, God forbid, what happened was like thousands of people read it. Mm. Um, And so then I found that I really couldn't, you know, no publisher would ever pick up that book because it's freely available online. Um, And also some of the things had already been said and some of it uh, needed to be refined. So um, for example, in the dissertation, I think there's a few chapters on the history of Hinduism in the U S work that's been done very well by um, other scholars uh, since then. Um, And, and then the kind of argument, I think, became a bit more precise uh, in my mind, what I was really trying to say and what was important to me about the structures um, uh, of American religion and multiculturalism that Amma found herself in and her devotees operate within in the United States context, as well as the transmigration of of a, an idea or a person across vast territories and the morphing and the shifting of that um, it, through the processes of migration and um, globalization. So I think that crystallized in my mind considerably in the intervening years. Um, most of the research of the book, like the heaviest part of the research, although it seems like, you know, years and years was, I would say 2006 to 2008. Um, after that I had periodic involvement, you know, three times a year, I would kind of check in with devotees or call people that I knew, um, over a long period of time to ask questions as I was revising and writing.
1: Now, before we get too far, uh, there's a lot of people that probably don't know who AMA is. So can you give us a kind of a, a, a portrait of Alma? Who Who is she? What kind of activities is she involved in? Uh, what kind of uh, teaching or program is she promoting for her followers?
0: Yeah, with any um, internationally famous figure, that's always quite a fraught question, actually. It seems the simplest question, who is this person, right? Um, but in order to access that It's quite difficult, and so you have to think about what Goffman calls, uh, you know, front stage and backstage behaviors or look at hagiographical sources, which, of course, there are many hagiographical, meaning the genre of of literature that devotees write about saints and gurus and esteemed religious figures of some sort. Um, So I'll give you kind of the hagiographical version, and then perhaps we can parse out as we keep talking the different aspects of what I'm doing. Um, So she is a living person. Let's start there. She's born in 1953 in a region of South India um, in a small fishing village in Kerala. Um, And the hagiographical version says that uh, she was um, of darker pigmentation than her siblings and poor. She dropped out of school at quite a young age. um, And she was Uh, Kind of discriminated against even by her own family members for her kind of darker complexion. She was um, required to do quite a bit of service to the family and to the community. Um, But she, you know, according to these uh, devotional sources, and you know, there's parallels that move across these biographies of saints or the hagiographies of saints and gurus, but you know, communing with flora and fauna and always being compassionate and having a sympathetic heart and having moments of connection with divinity. So, all of those kind of Classical or or traditional stories are there, too, as well in her hagiography. Um, Eventually, the story goes, she began comforting those who were suffering around her in her village. And she would give, uh, she would embrace them as an act of compassion to uh, empathize with their suffering. Uh, Over time, people began to feel uh, that these embraces were powerful in some sense, and so she began to host small, what she would call darshans or darshan programs. And in Hindu terminology, darshan is the seeing and being seen by God um, or, you know, by extension, a divine figure. So even by calling these darshans here at the outset, you can see that she's beginning to be positioned and or position herself, however you want to read it, um, as uh, closer to divinity than regular folks. Um and these Darshan programs grew, and they grew from a few people to a few hundred people to now, you know, a few thousand people. And today she tours the world, really, residing for approximately a third of the year, if not a third to half of the year in India. Um, but she's still constantly moving and traveling um, throughout the world, giving these Darshan programs, wherein anywhere from, say, uh, 8,000, um, some of the smaller ones in the U.S. can be about 5,000, up to 50,000 or 100,000 people will attend. Um, and she hugs them, her kind of radical revision of darshan, which is traditionally just a visual activity. Um, she hugs individuals one by one um, in, without kind of taking what uh Vasudhan Narayan once called bio-breaks, which I think is a great term. Um, you know, not eating or drinking or, or anything else. Um, sometimes, you know, insiders know that she does eat something, um, like a smoothie of sorts, but, you know, from the general populace looking on, she sits in a chair for anywhere from eight to 18 hours. Um, yeah. And her, you know, we can talk more about her message as we get into the book. Um, but She's a figure who I, I sometimes think of her in, in relation to the Dalai Lama, where the message that she preaches globally is quite simple, like love and compassion, um, quite universal. Although, like the Dalai Lama as well, when you kind of dig down into the references, whether textual she's making or or kind of her background, it's quite specific uh and Hindu in in flavor, so and history.
1: Hmm. Now you mentioned earlier uh when you first were searching for female gurus, you kind of got this uh, negative response. Could, could, do you think you could situate for us uh, where Amma fits into kind of this history of women gurus? Uh, how, how is she similar? How is she different? Um, and perhaps just generally how are female religious leaders viewed by uh, Hindus more generally?
0: Right. Um Well, the majority, I'm sure, as most of our listeners know, the majority of gurus extant in the world uh, are male. The majority of religious leaders within Hindu traditions are male, um, and that ref- that is a reflection of traditional patriarchal paradigms that have been instantiated uh, in Hindu scriptures and texts as well as social conventions and cultural conventions that have led to male dominance in the religious field. Um, that said, I would, there, uh, Lynn Tuskey-Denson, I think uh, in her kind of a bit older book by now, suggests that maybe 10% of the religious field may be comprised of women. There are some outliers like Anandamai, uh, you know, the Bengali saint uh, of the, late 19th and early 20th century. I mean, she lived till 1982, but, you know, her formative years were quite early on in the 20th century who became very famous. Um, There's Amma, who is, you know, Mata Amrita Nandamai uh, from Kerala that this book is about and her followers. There's several other figures who've become quite famous um, in the present. Now, that's just noting these kind of globally famous gurus doesn't necessarily detract from the fact that in some sense, the Brahmanical authorities that I was talking to in Varanasi that said that female renunciation is a, a kind of social welfare system for impoverished women, illiterate women, or destitute women, or women without male support. Um, that's not only just a misogynistic statement. It, it's also true to some extent. There are women who um, rely on this system to, to provide them with alms and, and resources for, for sustenance, just in the way that there are those same uh, kind of situations with men in the system. Uh, I think Antoinette DiNapoli's work mostly works on postmenopausal menopausal uh, women who may be of a lower um, educational background and, and caste background who are active within the system of renunciation. And some of those women function as gurus as well. So those women exist and, and they're in part. But Ama is one of the few who is um, kind of what Copeman and Aikigame, J- uh, Jacob Copeman and, and Aikigame call in their book um, recently, have called kind of like hyper gurus, these um, celebrity gurus who may travel globally, or at least their image and their message travels globally. Um as to why more women have not taken this route, I think it's cultural prohibitions and, and kind of direct textual prohibitions, whether it's the, the most conservative that women are not allowed to read the Veda or say om, oh, um, although that, you know, that's a contentious issue as to whether that is actually uh, enacted in, in reality or whether it's just kind of a, a misogynistic textual account.
1: Now, much of the book focuses on the American context, and uh, there's been a fairly long history of of gurus in america and uh, You touch on this in terms of her devotees. Do you think you could give us a little bit about where Amma falls in terms of American expectations of what a guru provides uh, in terms of kind of a cultural memory of of the role of the guru in america
0: absolutely um. So it's it's kind of a long story and then there's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll try to parse it down into a couple key moments that I think were critical to um, the, to kind of informing the present. And th- this book is of course about, about the present as well as giving that kind of historical reference points that kind of unpack and inform how we can think about the present more effectively. Um, but Some of the first representatives or the first ideas about Hinduism. Came into the United States through gurus, through the kind of imaginary of the guru. Even before that, if you look at um, Michael Altman's recent dissertation, in fact, he's looking at the imaginary of Hinduism and the imaginary of of um, religious figures within Hinduism that kind of came into the U.S. even as early as 1700s and 1800s. Um, he's doing that kind of work in order to write, which is what is the common starting point for so many books on Hinduism in America which is, of course, Swami Vivekananda's speech at the World's Parliament of Religions in Chicago in uh, 1893. Um, so it's a really important, the work he's doing, to know that Emerson and Thoreau were reading Vishnu Purana, you know, and thinking about Hindu ideas as they wrote their classic works. is very important, um, and not to kind of just start with Vivekananda. Um, but Vivekananda is such a seminal historical figure because he was so um, kind of, Uh, appealing to the American media that he made quite a splash and he instituted some of the first Hindu uh, or Hindu derived organizations in the U S that quite, that lasted um, like the Vedanta societies, even though he had kind of no intentions of starting them, they flourished in his wake. Um, So then you have this kind of turn toward India, turn toward the guru and also of course the Christian and um, kind of anti Hindu backlash that followed immediately thereafter or even uh, contemporaneously with Vivekananda um, of people saying, you know, we don't want Americans and certainly not American women to be lured by these foreign ideas. Um, So then you kind of have the nativist turn, what you might look at in the 1920s and 30s. Um, A few people got in, for example, Paramhansa Yogananda came in in 1920 and began to do works on the West Coast and, and publishing, of course, his famous Autobiography of a Yogi, 1940. Um, but really, it's the 60s then, post Vivekananda, that bring gurus to the centerfold. 19, I believe it's 68, is the year of the guru and Time Magazine and the Beatles. And um, so many different people uh, in the counterculture began to turn to India as a source of uh, kind of wisdom and um uh, spirituality, mysticism, all kind of sometimes framed within Orientalist ideals of, of kind of a pre-modern or anti-modern sensibility of, of real knowledge. Um, and then the, with the 1965 Immigration Act, gurus come into the fold, um, kind of full force. And we are, there's a proliferation of gurus in the U.S., everything from TM and uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, TM being Transcendental Meditation, or ISKCON, the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, by A.C. Bhaktivedanta, Swami Prabhupada. Um, and the kind of Osho, you know, starting off Rajneesh Purdom in Oregon in the 70s and 80s. But in the 70s and 80s, some of these gurus begin to get in trouble. In fact, all of them get in trouble in some way, whether legally, financially, sexually, um, They kind of fall one by one. Now, that's not to say they don't have contemporary devotees, but their movements kind of radically come under attack in the 80s and 90s. So much to the extent that by the 90s, there's a lot of disillusioned ex-guru followers floating around in the United States. People who may still know something about chanting a mantra, people who may know something about meditation or puja, ritual worship, um, but are kind of lost without a guru home, without a guru leader and maybe disillusioned with the entire enterprise a little bit. Um, because most of the leaders who were ma- were involved in the U S most of the gurus who were involved in the U S in the sixties and seventies were male. Um, I believe that people turned and devotees told me that they turned to Amma and as she kind of became quite popular in the nineties and two thousands um, and afterwards as a female guru, believing that she would not fall prey to the sexual indiscretions of kind of the male
1: wave of gurus. That's that's kind of, yeah, that's really interesting now. So uh, in terms of Amma's relationship with her devotees, um, Darshan becomes the kind of central component here. And, uh, in various, uh, parts of the book, you kind of look at this from different angles. Um, but i think one of the key arguments you're making is that she is really transforming or reimagining what what darshan is and how it uh how it happens so can you can you kind of tell us about what what her darshan looks like both in kind of these more regular programs in uh, during special occasions um and and how that affects her her followers
0: sure um yeah, it's quite interesting in that I think it affects her, her followers a bit differently. Um, from a Western view, and I hate to use these terms, you know, Eastern and Western, which obviously uh, don't hold, but that, that's kind of ironic because it's also the way in which it's framed within the movement, right? They have a Western kitchen and an Indian kitchen and things like that, um, quite quite divided it's at times, so at any rate, I'll continue to use this term "Western," meaning uh, in this case the U.S. People who are not the people in the book that I call adopters to the tradition, right? Mostly people who are not born within a Hindu tradition. When they look at darshan, they may not see it as anything special. I mean, they may say hugs are great, <laughs> hugs feel good, or why, um, or, or not, see it as to be a kind of a personally moving experience, but they don't have a connection between Amma's process of darshan, hugging everyone who comes to see her as um, kind of transgressive in any sense. Um, The difference within a Hindu context is that there are laws governing purity and pollution within the Hindu context where um, upper castes would not intermingle with lower castes in a physical manner um, or the fluids of the body or, 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 items that have been, you know, intimate with the body in any way. Uh, Similarly, men and women in public spaces do not intermingle physicalities. uh, As one devotee put it, we Indians don't touch, right? Which is, of course, an oversimplification. Um, But certainly strangers, um, there are restrictions. There are social conventions that restrict physicality between strangers, um, between men and women in particular, between upper and lower castes. So, Amma's hug, as Selva Raj puts it, is her discourse on defiance. And I think he's quite right. Um, he was quite right when he said that in that it's a public display that radically challenges caste and gender norms. So, whether sick or healthy or old or young or upper caste, lower caste, female or male, Amma gives this embrace, um, and, and devotees receive it, uh, without Uh, with equanimity, let's say. Now, at times, um, what's interesting about the American context, Amma got started in some sense because she would have these moments of bhava. Bhava means kind of uh, the, an overcoming of emotion where she was transformed into initially the God Krishna, later the goddess Kali. And this is, you know, of course, something that devotees believe, but she would have this radical transition where, no longer would it be kind of the the person that you thought it was, but that the god or the goddess would be uh, revealing him or herself through Amma's body. Um, these were called bhavas. Initially, again, I said Krishna bhavas, and then they transitioned over time into Devi bhavas, Devi meaning the goddess. Now, in India, this is to some extent how people began to believe that she was a superhuman entity because she was exhibiting these bhavas. Um And at kind of surprising times and people began to believe that she was the goddess incarnate and many of her devotees believe that very fact in the U.S. as she began to tour she came to the U.S. in 1987 in every city she began to perform these Devi babas in a much more orchestrated fashion where she would kind of come in a simple white sari and lead the audience in spiritual talks in bhajans. And then after some time, she would go behind a curtain. And when the curtain was opened, she would emerge in kind of a brilliant, expensive uh, silk brocaded with gold sari with a crown on her head and uh, rose malas, and people would chant the ardhi and um, kind of in doc, uh, in sc- pray to her as the goddess, believing that at that time she had become more visibly goddess incarnate. Um, and so these were called Devi Babas. What's interesting is over time, Amma stopped performing them in India. And there's all kinds of speculation as to why, but she continues to pr- perform them in the United States context. Um, and people believe, many of her devotees believe that the Devi Bhava programs are quite special, that if you have a particular need or want, um, that that's the time to pray for it, to get close to Amma, that she's exuding uh, a more intense Shakti or or kind of energy or power on those particular nights because the goddess is fully revealed in her physical body.
1: Now, Amma also is transforming uh, women's leadership roles in terms of what they can do uh, in terms of religious uh, ritual as well. Can you talk a little bit about how she's um, transforming women's leadership in terms of uh, ritual purity and ritual performance? Uh, h- How's this changing in the American environment?
0: Yeah. Um, well, that is certainly not restricted. That's part of Amma's mission Uh, internationally Um, and in fact many of the endeavors that she has focused on to augment women's leadership are are focused on India Um, but then let me parse this into a couple different frames which within which we might uh, analyze this so first Amma exists with her disciples in a mimetic relationship where Disciple, like many other gurus, most gurus I would say, um, where the disciple aspires to be like Amma, meaning uh to inhabit her compassion, to inhabit her uh equanimity, right? Those are two examples that are often given within the movement. Um so in that way, Amma, by example, by kind of thwarting Brahmanical norms of purity and pollution or the prohibitions against female guruship or female leadership. She is, is leading by example and encouraging others to do the same just by her very existence. Um, on the ritual side of things, Amma has been quite transgressive in some sense in that she performs herself, the prana pradista, uh, in her temples, which is the prana, right? The blowing of air, uh, of life force into the central murtis, the central deities of her temple, um, of her various temples, I should say. So she performs that herself, which is, that is a task usually reserved for a male Brahmin priest, Um, as well as she has women acting as pujaris or priests within uh, her temples in India, as well as ritual, as doing kind of ritual actions like, uh, homas or Vedic sacrifice, um, globally. So she's really eliminated these roles of kind of priestly authority that are traditionally restricted to Brahmin men with the correct educational training. Um, and she's broadened this out to encompass women and Westerners and, and all different kinds of, um, you know, whether you're, from a different part of Asia or whatever. You don't have to be born Hindu, in other words, in order to um, uh, perform these roles. Now, that said, there are some times when she does call in Brahman priests to do. So it's not a wholesale rejection, but it's an inclusionary tactic. So that's the primary means on the um, on the ritual aspect. Then in a quite social aspect, she's organized programs, specifically focused on women. So she abides by this ideal um, that's often stated in her humanitarian literatures that um, women are the keystone of communities and that if one contributes to women, women turn around and contribute back to the community. So that's kind of the justification for many of the different micro businesses that she's funded that focus on women's entrepreneurship um or or uh, assistance programs to which she 's focused on on females more than males, now that said, of course, she has you know Ames hospital, which is not focused particularly on women or men right it 's just a social program available to all so there 's the gamut
1: yeah now within all of these activities and uh this m- modeling of uh female empowerment um there's Various kind of discursive spaces happening revolving around what the role of the goddesses in this kind of divinity, um, ideas about feminism and what that means and where female empowerment works into this conversation. So, h- how does Amma navigate these very different discursive spheres among her, her very diverse followers?
0: Yeah, I think it's difficult, honestly. Um, and part of what the book attempts to parse is how her rhetoric is variously interpreted by multiple voices. Um, in some sense in India, it's been a long standing, uh, cultural ideal that women are like goddesses. We have this in the early nationalist movement. You have it, uh, you know, kind of throughout, uh, uh, Indian ideas about the goddess, respect your respect fellow women as if they were the goddess is quite a common thing to hear within the Hindu context um, now that said, it doesn't necessarily translate into social reform or egalitarian uh, actions on the ground and, and and there's some feminists within India who become quite frustrated at this right the The idea that the rhetoric of women are like goddesses is is somehow disempowering because it detracts from the quite material needs of human flesh and blood women. Um, This is a contested point though, because there are other feminists within India who would argue that, well, if this is already kind of a cultural trope with some power to it, then why not use it so that you could, um, kind of get more women behind the, the cause of female empowerment. Um, like feminism, you know, has its own complicated history. And as it's been exported, um, from Western voices, it has run into quite a few difficulties where people in, in non-Western regions kind of resent the term itself. Or believe the term to be combat- combative or elitist or overly white or linked to colonial contexts in which, um, Europeans or in, you know, in India's case, the British would focus on women's issues in order to, um, justify colonial activities, uh, and, and, and the administration. So it has this kind of fraught history. So it's, it's not quite surprising that Indian Hindus and Amma's movement don't use the term. They tend to think about uh, equanimity in a Vedantic kind of sense of, of we are all one and thus we should all be equal. Not that women should be better than men or, or upheld more than men or that we need this thing. That's kind of this superimposition upon us called feminism. Um, but rather that if we were all equal, then this wouldn't be an issue. Right. And they see Amma is trying to write that balance that we've been, um, kind of patriarchal for so long that what Amma is doing to raise up women is not in fact feminism, but it's just creating an even scale, um, from a corruption of history. And often in the Indian context, this is re, this is referred back to as kind of returning to the golden age of the Vedas where supposedly, or in this imaginary, um, women and men were equal, they were female sages, women and men were needed, in fact, and this is uh, documented within the text and work like Stephanie Jamison has done at um, in her book, Sacrificed Wife, Sacrificer's Wife, of uh, the idea that women were needed within the Vedic context to perform familial rituals. So there's, although the idea of kind of equanimity and and gender equality in in the Vedic time period is is not quite defensible historically. Um, It is a very popular mythological idea that um, plays heavily, I think, in the ideas of, of Amma, as well as some of her Indian Hindu followers. What the kind of tricky wicket happens is when Ama says the same things, women are like goddesses, women should be respected, um, gets told to uh, American women, most of whom have some relationship or knowledge of kind of second wave feminism and the goddess movement in the United States. They definitely begin to appropriate her ideas and kind of absorb them in terms of feminism, in terms of, you know, if women ran the world, uh, we wouldn't have some of the problems that male ambition and aggression and reactivity and egoism, these are things that Amma lists as male qualities. Um, they kind of see that as the problem. And so then also issuing a corrective of following Amma to augment female qualities, which Amma or feminine qualities, which Amma uh, ascribes to be, you know, patience and love and compassion and sacrifice. Um, so, they're interpreted differently, but ultimately what Amma does to kind of solve the problem and also the fact that, you know, we're a men in this picture is she talks about um, uh, that everyone should adopt feminine qualities. These qualities of unconditional love and compassion and asceticism and patience through this ideal of universal motherhood, which is what she claims to embody. Um, Now, as I show in the book, there are times when these qualities in her discourses become linked to bodies, and there are times when they're seen to be kind of disconnected feminine and masculine ideals, Um, and that's a tension within her rhetoric. But certainly in, in her argument, she would say that both men and women can adopt these qualities of love and compassion and sacrifice that are traditionally understood to be feminine.
1: I think that leads into uh, in much of the book you're you're thinking more about interpretations of these devotees and how they uh, have these differing perspectives and um, related to this issue is kind of the Ama as goddess and, and how this is uh, variously interpreted her kind of divinity um, where if we're thinking of inheritors and adopters they understand her nature uh, in very different ways so can, can you talk a little bit about the the spectrum of interpretations of Amma's uh, divinity and, and what effects that has on how people respond to her and interact with her?
0: Sure. Um, I think the spectrum there with regard to you is Amma divine, is is less divided by inheritors and adopters and more divided by time and the movement, right? There are very few people, there are some actually, I should say, who immediately meet Amma and are struck by her, um, become devotees, kind of step outside of their everyday lives and immediately believe that she is divine incarnate on earth. Um For others, it's a much more gradual process, I would say, where they uh, maybe see Amma once or twice and then become more and more involved in the movement. Some go on tour with Amma, working kind of day jobs uh, in order to drop them at will or virtual jobs in order to do as much touring as possible. Some stay with Amma at her ashrams, again, kind of leaving aside their previous lives um, in full dedication to Amma. And I think that really uh, that is not all that different across the the cultural and ethnic divides within the movement as to the process of how that you know acculturation occurs.
1: Um, what you do see happening, uh, at least from your field work in the Chicago area, was uh, the way that these different groups responded to each other. Um, can you talk a little bit about how some of the cultural or ethnic differences um, played into how subgroups were formulated within uh, Amma's followers.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, more and more as I begin to think about, or as I continue to think about religion in America, um, as it regards, as it is related to cultural and cultural um, culture and ethnicity, that religion is a sanctioned space in the United States that serve ethnic and cultural functions as well. It's a a safe space wherein uh, uh, people feel free to share their ethnic solidarities and their cultural solidarities with, um, quote unquote, like-minded people. And so... What I have, what I noticed in Chicago um, through my field work, and then I have, you know, even in the years subsequently since then, seen it more and more kind of on a national schedule as, as a level as I've moved around a bit more, um, is that churches and other religious environments become ethnic hubs and cultural hubs where people not only connect to the religious space, but they connect to the food And the particular needs of their community, they connect to the language oftentimes. For example, if you would go to a a Hindu temple and then there's Gujarati lessons, right? And there's Tamil lessons or there's Hindi lessons for the population there who needs that void filled for their community and for their youth for the most part. Um, But really has not very much to do with the religious tradition. Because, of course, scripture is written in Sanskrit, right, um, for the most part. Um, and and sometimes they offer Sanskrit, but quite often it's going to be a, a modern vernacular language. They also may have job networking. Or if you go into, um, for example, Latino Catholic churches like uh, Elaine Pena's work notes, they have help in how to deal with the immigration system in the the kind of back rows of the pews. So looking at the kind of other functions that religious spaces are serving – um, quite helps us to understand how the community in Chicago, the Indian Hindu Malayalis from Kerala used that satsang or congregational space as a cultural network, which means that as they also used as a space to preserve cultural traditions. So for example, there was Malayali food, there was um, Malayali dress, there were, Hindu or traditionally uh, Hindu um, gendered seating arrangements, right? Where the men would sit on one side and the women would sit on another. What happens then for somebody who's not from that region or from India um, or identifies as Hindu um, as a religious um, uh, identity comes into that space. They kind of feel like maybe I'm not supposed to be here. Right. and sometimes in in other satsang spaces that I've been to in different cities, the Indian Hindu community is not so strong. What happens in Chicago is that the community is quite strong and quite robust. Um, so then that feeling kind of increases among what we might call adopters or American metaphysicals. Um, and what happened in Chicago was that they divided out and began to start their own satsangs that were not so dependent on Indic cultural traditions. So usually they would have Indian food, but not always. Um, sometimes they would have chanting in English instead of Sanskrit for people who were um, feeling kind of uncomfortable with the foreignness of the language. Um, and they really approached Amma's message in uh, American spirituality terms rather than uh, Hindu terms. So kind of the interpretations began to vary. Now, in other cities where the population of Indian Hindus is not so strong, or let's say the satsang, um, then it becomes kind of more diverse in those cities with multiple people coming into um, into one satsang. Rather than in Chicago, there's a very large community. And what I began to find was that as the community became even more powerful, they were able to divide, right, which is kind of the American story of fragmentation, um, according to, um, you know, Disestablishment and ideas of freedom of religion.
1: You also uh, talk about romantic orientalist attitudes and how this shapes uh, kind of the dynamics of the community. So, for con- for contemporary devotees, is, is South Asian constructed in a particular way uh, for adopters, and does this materialize within the the community in particular uh, instances?
0: Yes, um, and this is a huge issue that I'm eyes deep in with this current book on yoga as well. (laughs) Um, In Amma's case, it's quite interesting because you can't necessarily have the vociferous argument of cultural appropriation because these are people who've been proselytized too. So they're kind of converts, you know, rather than you just have to be a bit careful there. Um, But still, there's a ambiguity. in what is expected of non-Indian people who become a part of the movement. So for example, if you go to Amma's Darshan programs in the back, they'll be selling all kinds of things from India. And there's some, uh, suggestion in the, in the kind of cultural of the movement that it's appropriate. For example, all of Amma's, um, immediate devotees, even though, uh, non-Indians wear saris or wear, um, Either white saris for the the brahmacharis or the kind of more novices, or for the swamini, even she wears a orange sari, even though she's a white woman from Australia. So there's um, a sense that to become part of the movement, that there's a um, acclimation to Indianness in cultural behavior, not only in religious behavior. Um, this transforms into uh, an idea among many. Uh, of the non-Indian devotees that um, it really plays into historical tropes and historical paradigms of India as a land of mysticism and spirituality and um, ancient, pre-modern knowledge. Um, Indians sometimes are expected to serve as cultural brokers or religious brokers to non-Indian populations um within the movement, sometimes they are put into that position through the administration to say, you know, to have a Western or, or a, a non-Indian not do something on their own, but kind of have Indian supervision to make sure that that happens. Um, so it's a, a complex negotiation because when the, kind of the Amma steps outside of that territory, Um, and maybe seen on the street wearing a sari, then that kind of smacks of a cultural appropriation that is quite unpopular um, in this current political moment um, for good reason. So I think that the ways in which Indians and non-Indians within the movement are interacting, particularly not just non-Indians, but particularly whites um, within the movement are interacting interacting has kind of this historical valence to it where oftentimes, uh, Indians feel as though they need to kind of protect against, uh, encroachments by whites. And then whites within that circle also feel as though they are afraid of kind of being supervised or, or doing it wrong or being laughed at, um, as they kind of are told to adopt or acclimate to Indic culture through the movement. So it's got quite a a strong historical resonance that dates back into the Romantic Orientalist period, but then seems to be revivified with um, current and you know in the interactions of the 1960s up to the present day. Mm.
1: Now we we've taken up a lot of your time, but uh, I want to kind of give you the last open word. So, is there anything you'd want readers to take away from the book that we haven't? discussed at at length here?
0: I think that the primary contribution of the book um, is to look at three different particular items. And I'll just very quickly, one would be um, the transformation of this movement as it moved out of rural village India and into the global context. Um, That is quite interesting. And I think the case... The, the book forms a bit of a case study in that regard to look at the micro study of how things changed as things got bigger and bigger and bigger onto a global scale into more localities. Um, the second would be gender and looking at historically shifting significations of masculinity and femininity. How when Vivekananda preached to American audiences that he wanted a masculine Hinduism, he meant something very different from Ama when she preached in, you know, contemporary times that she wants to see a feminized Hinduism. So to hear these different spokespeople use the same terms to mean completely different things, I think really shows us on a practical level, what gender theorists have been trying to say for the last 20 years, that these are kind of floating signifiers that, that can be inflected only for, you know, that are inflected for political reasons. Um, And then the third thing that I I'm pushing just a bit, I think, in this book, but really is informing my current work on postural yoga in the American context is the questioning liberal multiculturalism um, and looking at the way in which it reifies stereotypes of what it means to be Indian, where the Indian is put in a position of, of kind of being a spokesperson and only being able to be Indian in certain ways. Um, and the way it can create these communalisms and fragmentation among different ethnic groups, um, and and really mi- um, minimize our ability to act, uh, be different, right? when I mean, we see with Amma kind of taming the goddess, domesticating her to fit into an American conception of what Hinduism is, um, which is quite neo-Vedantic. So. Yeah.
1: Now we would love to hear a little bit more about this this project you've kind of been teasing us with throughout the interview. So what what exactly is your new project doing?
0: Right. So for the past um, five years, I've been looking particularly at yoga festivals. Um, so festival spaces like Bhakti Fest and Shakti Fest and Hanuman Fest, and the, you know, there's many, many. Um, they kind of bleed into the what is called transformational festival. Uh, realms like lightning in a bottle or um, burning man is probably the most famous of the transformational festival ideal over into bhakti spaces where the kind of kirtan festivals are occurring, bhakti meaning devotion um, and kirtan being being devotional music. And so particularly I'm interested in looking at the way that um, American spirituality is being created in these spaces how does Hinduism interact with Buddhism, interact with Native American religious traditions? Um, and how does yoga come in as kind of an indigenous knowledge that then becomes um very fundamental to American spirituality right now in contradistinction to religion, which is seen to be institutional? um you know hierarchical corrupt and and of course is on the decline uh as if we look at church numbers in the US so looking at um yoga is kind of a a vector to through which to see the broader context of american spirituality and how practice is recoded um as non-religious and when the people who are actually doing yoga end up kind of unwittingly stepping into very deep religious territories Um, And then how they blend those together to create uh, their individuated bricolage uh, ideals.
1: Well, it sounds great. We wish you luck. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to talk about this wonderful book.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated talking with you. That
1: was my conversation with Amanda Lucia about her great new book, Reflections of Ama, Devotees in a Global Embrace, published with University of California Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Religion.